Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Albert Oligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, we are talking with Comfort Era, President and Chief Executive Officer of International Crisis Group. We're going to be looking at the work they are doing in conflict prevention, conflict resolution, essentially conflict worldwide. They do research, they do advocacy, they engage with policymakers, both publicly and privately. So this is a truly interesting conversation. You'll enjoy the episode. And without further ado, Comfort, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. You're out there in New York today. I'm here in London, although you're normally based in the UK. Yes. <laughs> so you're the President and Chief Executive Officer of International Crisis Group. And I'd love to start by finding out a little bit about the organization. What's it all about? Thank you, Alberto, for welcoming me onto the podcast. Um, International Crisis Group, it's a conflict prevention organization. We were born in 1995, established in 1995, um, to focus on preventing, mitigating, and resolving um, conflicts as well throughout the world. And we do this by informing, uh, first analyzing, um, informing policymakers, um, conflict actors, um, about best ways um, to think about ending conflict, about thinking through creative ways and pathways out of conflicts. Um, our first um, effort or our first attempt is to sound the alarm, to warn early um, about impending crises that we see um, down the line, um, proposing what we would consider to be intelligent um, policies. Um, and our central goal, Alberto, at the end of this is not just collecting information for information's sake. It's not just collecting data for data's sake, but it's all geared towards um, stopping conflicts, ending conflict, preventing them first, and then ultimately to save lives as well. And the organization itself, tell us a little bit about uh, how many people uh, constitute the organization, the key areas that you're, uh, I imagine you have some research, some advocacy. Give us a little bit of a flavor for that. Yeah. The, the organization's around about 140 people who spread across the, the world. And our, our gro global reach for quite a small organization is quite um, vast. So we're in Latin America, um, we're in Africa, we're in the Middle East and North Africa, we're in Europe and Central Asia, and we're in Asia itself. And in more recent times, um, we have established a program in the United States. I mean, this is quite a unique decision that we took um, back in 2017 when it was clear to our board members that the United States also needed to be in a sort of a subject of analysis in terms of its foreign policy. And we sort of doubled down on our US program in light of the worrying um, sort of picture that was coming out from the elections, leading up to the elections in 2020, in the midst of uh, post-George um, Floyd, and also just because the rhetoric that was being used by the administration at the time about battlefields, you know, and about enemies of the states and just rising tensions. So we applied our methodology um, that we use globally to the United States as well. 
Um, I think the the other key issue about crisis group is that it's not just an organisation that produces reports for reports' sake. Um, a lot of our work is about advocacy, about shifting the policy dial, about nudging actors and influencing um, the perceptions um, and the actions of policymakers and key actors as well, so as to make sure that they can think in smart, coherent ways about how to end conflict, how to avert further fighting, and how to mitigate further um, conflicts uh, around the world. And, you know, we produce um, what I would consider to be sort of reliable, um, sharp reporting and analysis um, that is sort of aimed also, especially in this day and age, Alberto, about dealing with misinformation and disinformation, getting facts on the ground um, and making sure that people are relying on clear, coherent, factual-based data and not misinformation or disinformation as well. How easy is it to engage with policymakers and those highly consequential individuals involved in foreign policy? How easy is it to get to them, to speak with them, to reason with them and uh, and get them to uh, hopefully to embrace the position that you're, that you're advocating? And that's a good question. I mean, I think one of the things, I mean, that I'm proud of, um, having been an analyst myself and then risen through the ranks you know, to be a project director and then to be a, a program director, it's just that the astonishing access that, that my colleagues um, have. And, you know, policymakers want to listen to crisis groups. I mean, this is not something that happens overnight, I, I should say. You know, it's it takes time to build confidence among conflict um, actors, um, among decision makers and policy makers. And it also um, takes a lot of time to find the right connections and to build the right networks and to build trust as well. I mean, a lot of our access, a lot of the ability for us to get the analysis right, to get the policy pres prescription right and to lay out um, to lay out sharply what we think the, the options are, are very much contingent on the access that we gain. And it is getting harder in some um, environments where we see the political spaces clo um, closing, where we see that um, journalists are attacked, where we see civil societies under a lot of strain, um, where we see um, freedom of, of expression often curtailed. It's often hard to get to the people who matter in a number of these um, instances. But again, I'm always impressed um, by the ability of our analysts to get behind, um, you know, to get to the real, the people that really matter. And often we're called into the room to sort of lay out our work and to speak directly to those who are involved in the, in the crisis, um, whether it's military leaders, rebel leaders, um, heads of states themselves, um, chief of defense, intelligence, um, you name it. Um, but it takes time. And it, this is based on our credibility, our integrity. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen auto automatically. We we really spend our time trying to, to build and win that trust. And people know at the end, Alberta, when they read our report, they will see that we have reflected their di dilemmas that we have reflected their concerns in the report. What they may not like is the policy prescription that we're putting down because we're ultimately asking you to compromise. We're often asking you to do things 
that will impact your power and strength, but they are reading a report that is independent, impartial, um, and seeks to change um, the impact on people's lives as well. Mm. And the reports that you're producing, they're not always necessarily focused on state actors. Is that correct? I mean, you could have, you mentioned rebels, for instance, a little bit earlier. Very often you have conflict where one or multiple parties are not a state actor, are not recognized by any particular uh, government, but are playing a role in how the realities on the ground are shaping up. Exactly. So jihadi groups, various insurgent groups as well, militia groups, whether it's, you know, whether we're on, and opposition groups as well. So from Venezuela to Colombia, you know, to Mali and Burkina Faso in the Sahel to Ethiopia. I mean, our, our reports and right through to Afghanistan and Philippines, our reports deal with the whole sway of the conflict as well. Um, and we make sure that the analysis, um, you know, it focuses directly on understanding you know, why um, actors are fighting, you know, what are the key stakes in the conflict, um, who needs to be brought on board. And we also make sure the report is sort of inclusive of all the actors. So making sure that it has a very gendered perspective, uh, making sure that you're addressing the views of marginalized people as well um, and making sure that you have you know you've captured the the essence um, of the conflict so that you don't because and I think one of the concerns and one of the things that worry us is also is just the reoccurrence of conflicts as well and that reoccurrence is because you haven't created a peace agreement that is sustainable that is taken into consideration, the key actors, the key causes, the key constituencies, um, where the power lies, understanding the center of gravity in a particular conflict. And without those key essential ingredients and making sure you've got the right people on the table, without those key ingredients, then you're not going to get sustained peace, but you're going to see a recurrence and recurrence, even where the international actors are present in trying to resolve that conflict as well. Mm. Now, you just gave us a litany of conflict hotspots throughout mm. the world, ranging from Latin America to to throughout the globe. What do you make of the fact that the war in Ukraine is getting so much attention while a lot of other conflicts are almost unheard of in the media? This is a very good question. <laughs> and also, it's the, it's the reason why crisis groups exist. You know, the founding fathers of crisis group wanted to make sure that they had an organization that was agile, um, nimble, and able to address not only the big conflicts in the headlines um, that was attracting media attention, but all those also those that are unforgotten. I mean, I should underline, um, Alberto, that for crisis group, um, the reason why Ukraine has also been central to our work is because of its global ramifications, uh, because of its geopolitical um, significance and risks also, um, because of the nature of the aggression um, by Russia um, into Ukraine and how that usurps um, um, the international peace and security um, architecture, but also because we are staring down the, down the face um, of a potential um, nuclear escalation. And that's the reason why sort of Ukraine has, has dominated even our work as well. 
But in the midst of that, um, what Crisis Group has continued to do is to continue to focus um, its attention on all the other conflicts that are um, equally deadly, um, that are equally have geopolitical significance, and where the humanitarian toll um, is quite consequential, to, to use the term that you used um, earlier on. So, for example, um, in Yemen, um, for example, in Afghanistan, which was at the top of the international agenda, if you recall, um, last year, um, in South Sudan, and then the world, um, what I consider to be the world's deadliest conflict um, today in Ethiopia, um, where you've got um, a war that has been going on um, since November 2020, and now that has escalated. Um, and we've got, you know, humanitarian, um, huge um, um, displacement, huge humanitarian um, catastrophe, um, famine, drought, starvation, you name it, um, violence, um, the, the nature of the of the abuse um, against women um, and children, um, the lack of humanitarian space, um, and bringing attention um, back to this conflict as well has been something that we're focused um, on at the same time. And at the same time, you know, you've got reoccurrence around places like Nagorno-Karabakh, um, a region that has just seen intensification um, of border tensions, particularly between Armenia and, and Azerbaijan as well. So, you, you know, we've really focused on making sure that the international community, while it's right to focus on Ukraine, um, while it's important to, to, to recognise um, the scale and the magnitude of this conflict, not to turn a blind eye to other other conflicts. And of course, um, <clears throat> it wouldn't be a surprise to you to learn, Alberta, that you know, the international community um, has limited bandwidth <laughs> and all the key institutions that we rely on um, to help resolve conflicts. They're under severe strain. Um, they're dysfunctional. They're caught up in this geopolitical um, tension, um, high stakes, um, 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 great power politics that you're seeing, not just between the US and Russia, but the US and China, um, that also just makes it very difficult um, to get decisions um, through important um, chambers like the United Nations um, Security Council as well. So this is also complicated on um, the peace and security landscape as well. Uh, you're a fountain of knowledge when it comes to the world of conflict, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I can't, you know, even tell you that it's going to get better. You know, every single year, um, Crisis Group produces what we call 10 conflicts um, to watch. You know, I'm preparing the ground um, with my colleagues, for example, um, to highlight what we consider will be the 10 um, hotspots to keep an eye on uh, next year. And um, we did one um, to, um, for 2022, for example. And we warned, um, you know, sadly, at the start of the year that take Putin President Putin seriously at his word. Um, he's not bluffing that there will be some kind of military adventurism. Um, the extent of it, the, the 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 scale of it, we we wouldn't know, but there would be some kind of military adventurism as well. We also warned that you know the long shadow of great power politics, um, of tensions between the US and um, China would would accelerate um, and and grow um, and deeper, and we saw that um, over Taiwan um, this year. 
Um, we also, you know, warned that the situation, the humanitarian situation in Yemen, um, would um, would continue to deepen, and that the tension um, between Israel and Palestine, um, and you know, I don't, we we don't ever want to turn around and say we told you so. I mean, our job is not just to tell you so, but to get you to act, um, to nudge you to take um, the right policy. Um, um, decisions and to make sure um, that you have the right information in your hand um, to affect um, change as well. So it's really, um, you know, we're really focused on the pathways, the m- multiple pathway- pathways to get out of uh, out of conflicts and h- out of all these dilemmas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, without being indiscreet and appreciating that. Uh, in order to affect change in these sort of situations, perhaps you need to be quite active behind the scenes, especially if compromise is part of the uh, of the conversation. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight into how you might be operating with the relevant stakeholders in Ukraine, stroke Russia, or or elsewhere? You 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 used a certain word, which for me is 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 essential, which is discreet. Um, and you know, there's a public face of crisis group, and there's a very private um, face of crisis group as well. And as I said, my my colleagues um, are working a lot behind the scenes to make sure that we get the right message, the right analysis um, to the right people and at the right time. You know, crisis group is a, is a field based um, an advocacy organisation. We you know, we have a sort of a unique um, and and direct impact on alleviating crises across the world. And sometimes, you know, our urgent advocacy sometimes influences um, policymakers and and policy quickly. And other times, um, we we shift um, um, the ways um, actors and um, think, and we we help to sort of chart a new way for thinking about policy. For example, in Afghanistan, so. You know, my uh, our colleagues, um, our program director, for example, Laurel Miller, you know, working also with her counterparts in in DC, working with her analysts um, in the field, making sure that they get the relevant information to Congress. For example, we were asked to testify in front of Congress um, in a spate of one month. Um, we testified towards Congress in Afghanistan on on Sudan and. You know, and other conflicts as well. So it's really important when you know key national assemblies, key parliaments, you know, recognize our work and ask us to come in, you know, and brief them um, as they're about to take key decisions. For example, um, and you know, we we never reveal the names of people who ask to speak to us because our work depends on confidentiality. Um, our work um, depends really on on you know, making sure that people feel safe um, to speak to crisis group as well. So, um, but we use our, we use the information, we use our report as a ticket into the room. The re- the reports open the doors for us. And once we're in that room, Alberto, then we begin to um, focus on the analysis, focus on the policy, focus on how to get interlocutors to think through possible options. We, we try to change knowledge um, and be behavior. And also we, 
we try to, one of the things that Crisis Group is trying to improve on um, is building up a network of networks, you know, and, you know, building strategic partnerships and alliances because we can't go it alone. Um, you know, we're not, we're not big enough to, to go it alone and to affect change. You need multiple constituencies of people um, to, to, to do what we do and to do it well as well. Mm. And to do what you do and to do it well and all the research and all the advocacy, um, how are you funded? Because it can't be cheap. No, and my vision is a is an ambitious one also for the organization, especially given what's happened um with 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 Ukraine. Um so we're funded by governments and foundations and um, private individuals, philanthropies and corporations as well. And all of this is sort of detailed um, on our on our website. And, you know, in a, in a very troubling um, context that we've just been um, discussing as well, you know, I'm, I'm also sort of enormously grateful for all the partners um, that have continued um, to support Crisis Group. You know, it's been 27 years of very important investment um, and you know we couldn't simply do the work that we do. It's an organisation whose envelope um, is currently about twenty-five um, million, um, um, spread across um, the world, and um, and approximately fifty percent of that of that is from um, governments. Thirty percent is from foundations. I think twenty percent is from the private individuals and corporate and partners and. You know, I don't need to tell you because you come from the world that I came from as well. <laughs> I don't need to tell you that it, it is a, a tough um, fundraising um, environment, particularly at the moment um, with the economic downturn and, you know, this increasing competition for the philanthropic you know, dollar pounds and, or euros as well. Um, but we've found, um, and I'm really grateful for how philanthropists have been willing, you know, to react quickly. Um, I hope that we can sort of expand our envelope further um, to really secure um, um, other funds from governments and, and foundations as well. And we've got a really great um, development team, our analysts. Um, you know, once you get a crisis group analyst um, in front of you, um, you know, I there, this is where the treasure is in crisis group with the analyst, the, the wealth of information that they provide um, to governments, to donors, to individuals, um, to to support us, and they and they 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 are the heartbeat of the organisation. And getting them in front of um, the key donors and foundations of government is key for me to making sure that we continue to show our value and why it's important um, to continue to fund an organization that sounds the alarm and warns early and you know tries to nudge people to act early as well tell us a little bit about your analysts and i imagine there isn't one profile that 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 describes all of them but where do they come from are they from academia from government um think tanks who are your analysts what are, how would you characterize them describe them I know they're all individuals, but <laughs> yeah, no. Thank you for asking that question, and, and and I appreciate that as well. They they are multidisciplinary. You know, the the model that was created for Crisis Group twenty seven years ago is still that model, where 
um, you, your foot soldiers, your analysts, that's where it starts. You know, we, we hire people that are experts in their country and in their region. And they they are close to the front line. Um, these are people who've um, invested in in the countries that they work in, um, and who have taken time to know the people of the country, to know the key actors in the country, to understand the sociology, you know, to understand the psychology, to understand the lay of the land, and you know, it, the the what brings me sort of joy and why I get proud every single day is that you know I've got I've got access to like 135 people whose just knowledge of every country they work in is just phenomenal. It's like my own like my own like private foreign office. It's it's amazing. And that's what we are in a sense. Like these are analysts who in a sense are are a, sort of a, a private foreign office for the world. You know, and they give their information for free. Um, you know, they're they're out there pounding the streets, trying to get everybody to understand um a country, understand the key ingredients. And you know, they they the information that they provide is is dynamite. So these are people who are either um political scientists, sociologists, um, who are journalists, um, who are who've got humanitarian background, um, who've got nuclear physics background. Um, they come from an array of of sectors, but what binds them all um, is this this vocation of of making sure that policy actors, that decision makers, are armed with the right information, the right data, the right facts, with with ground truths to help them make the right um, decisions at all times. You know, that's their job. That's what they live for. That's their passion. Lucky you that you have access to 135 fountains of knowledge uh, yeah. that, that are able to inform you. Somehow, I I, I share that um, that privilege because I, every week I sit with people like you and uh, and get to enrich my knowledge base by by interviewing some remarkable folks. And on that topic, three three interviews that sort of align a lot with what you're saying here. One with Lord Jack McConnell. Who, who came on the show talking a lot about conflict resolution. The other one with Ambassador Chris Trott, who used to oh. be the UK ambassador to South Sudan. Yes. So yes. I had him on the show, and he's um, he's someone I hold in high esteem. And then also David Miliband, who's been on the show as well. And again, I imagine those are three names and three organizations that are probably useful for uh, for our listeners to 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 listen to it as well uh, for, uh, for a broader uh, context of, of today's conversation. And... So we've spoken a lot about the analysts. We've spoken a lot about the work that you do. Um, what about you? And so what's your personal narrative? How, how did you end up where you are today? You know, I'm, I've always been interested in international relations and international um, politics, um, partly because of the household in which I was brought up in. You know, I was always curious as to why my parents could never um, go home or why they chose to stay um, in the UK. My origins are Nigerian. And um, when my parents passed away, I I delved into, I found, I found letters of exchange, particularly between my mother and uh, her father. And um, his appeal to her to stay behind 
um, in London because this was not the right time um, because of the civil war that was taking place in, in Nigeria. And that just piqued an interest in me to understand what it meant um, for an individual to be told not to come home, especially by you know her parents as well, and trying to understand what it meant for my for my parents. And I began to appreciate also why they decided that despite the horrors of of what was happening in Nigeria at the time, um, why they decided that their children needed to experience Nigeria and go home. But we had to leave Nigeria because it was going through a turbulent um, time. And so I wanted to understand that. I wanted to understand the turbulence. I wanted to understand what it meant um, for a country to face civil war and upheaval. And that defined, in a sense, the choices that I made, the decision to study um, history, to understand international relations, to understand why states fight and why states go to war, but also to also understand what stops people from going home and not wanting to ever be told that I couldn't go home as well. So I, I started to study um, these things and um, decided that I wanted to work um, in an organisation um, that could help think through um, how to prevent overt conflict, um, how to do rigorous research, and also how to um, influence policy and how policy can affect um, a country that is at war. Um, so it's both a personal story, but also one that was just deeply interested. I was a student during the end of the Cold War, which was intriguing. I was a student at the time of Rwanda, um, which is a very painful moment, but I was also a student um, at the time when apartheid ended in South Africa and watching the humility of somebody like Nelson Mandela um, and that um, effort at justice and reconciliation and all those things came together um, for me and crisis group became um, an important base for me to test out ideas as well. So you have the perfect job. I love my job. <laughs> I feel lucky and blessed every day that I am leading an organization um, that still fulfills and matches my vision, my passion, and the idea um, that you could um, work with, you know, tremendous amount of colleagues um, who really believe fundamentally in this effort to, you know, avert and prevent and sound the alarm every every day. Um, it's um, it's a privilege, um, but I also feel blessed as well to be able to to be doing it, especially at such a difficult and com complex time in our world as well. Mm. What's the um, what's the key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? Um, you know, despite the fact that, you know, that the global order um, has been badly shaken and great power rivalry is back and authoritarianism, pol polarization is rising and no multilateralism appears to be a retreat. Um, I will leave you with maybe a, a sort of four or five points. Um, and this is sort of the essence of crisis group. So first thing I think it's worth leaving behind with your, with your listeners is that deadly conflict is preventable and resolvable. I think that's one. And I really want to emphasize that and underline that. 
I do think it is still possible for us to sound the alarm um, and to spur um, the world to act, even at this fraught um, time as well. And I do think that it's possible um, to craft pragmatic compromises. And I really want to emphasize pragmatic because that's what Crisis Group is, you know, pra pragmatic compromises before violence starts and uh, to head off um, the need for sort of humanitarian aid in the first place as well. And then everything, um, Alberta, um, everything that Crisis Group um, does um, will always remain focused on, on the single emission of stopping people from dying and suffering um, due to, to conflict. War is not inevitable. Um, I think it's really important that, especially now with what's happening, that people understand that. It is a man-made um, 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 disaster and we will not stop in our mission to, to build a world where there's less deadly violent conflict mm. as well. Thank you. Comfort, thank you so much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed meeting you and speaking with you and learning from you. And I wish you a great deal of success in the very important work that you're doing day in and day out. So thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for asking to speak to me as well. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Comfort Arrow, President and Chief Executive Officer of International Crisis Group. For information about this conversation and 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's lidji.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's episode for you. Found it very informative and I hope you did as well. Thanks so much and I'll catch you on Monday.